Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Advancing the Profession with your host, me, Rob Jackson. It is a real pleasure to have you back with us today, and thank you for taking the time to listen in to what I think is going to be an excellent conversation over the next few minutes with somebody who is really respected in the field of volunteer engagement, particularly for the work that she's doing around challenging people in the way they think about measuring volunteering, and that is Sue Carter-Carl from the U.S., who myself and a number of other people, including people I know interviewing in this series and the podcast, think is doing some of the best writing and blogging on volunteer engagement in the 21st century that there is out there at the moment. So it is a real joy to have you with us today, Sue. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Rob. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it should be good. So why don't we kick off nice, easy question Tell everybody about you, what's your your background, kind of how did you get to now, what do you do, why is volunteering a particular area of interest for you? Yes. So I started out, my whole career has been in nonprofits. I've been volunteering since I was a kid, but I started out actually in a role that was a program and I was coordinating active duty military recreation programs for them with the Armed Services YMCA and was hearing, for example, that they wanted to get out in the community, wanted to be part of the community. And so in addition to pool tournaments and ski trips and and movies, we started doing what I called the Military Volunteer Program or MVP to help get them out into the community. And that really was sort of the start of the thread that every job I had most of which have not been primarily volunteer coordination or directing or engagement, have had some piece of volunteerism. So when I was working in fundraising later on with Girl Scouts, I was talking about how much all of that volunteer time was worth. So my roots are in the nonprofit sector. And although I started out in program, I really was able to find kind of a way to weave volunteerism into any job that I had. So for example, I was working at the Armed Services YMCA coordinating recreation programs for junior enlisted military. And they wanted to get involved in the community. They wanted to get off base. They didn't always have transportation. So I started a program that in addition to the ski trips and the pool tournaments and outings to the movies, we could go out and volunteer at, to build houses for Habitat for Humanity or to paint the Veterans Center, for example. And most of my jobs really have not been around volunteer coordination directly. I've been in fundraising. I've been part of a volunteer center. I led Volunteer San Diego for a number of years. I served on our service commission for the state of California, and I'm in San Diego. And what I was discovering along the way was that the questions I had about volunteerism, I couldn't find the answers to in the research. I wasn't seeing kind of the literature answering the questions we had as as within our team at the volunteer center and in within the community. I thought maybe I have to go do that research myself, which is how I ended up getting back to graduate school and focusing on the value that volunteers bring to their organizations as part of my dissertation research. And since then, I've been consulting and writing and researching about volunteer engagement for nonprofits as well as philanthropic organizations that want to know more about how this matters, why this matters, and, and what it does for the community to have volunteers engaged. I hadn't realized that about your connection with volunteer centers. I spent six years at Volunteering England when it still existed over here. And part of my remit when I joined the senior leadership team there and just before that as the regional kind of development manager was supporting our work or leading our work eventually with the local volunteer centre network in England. So that whole kind of volunteer centre, volunteering infrastructure thing is very, very 
dear to my heart. Tell me about some of those questions that you didn't think you were getting the answers to, because mm -hmm. they're probably the same as what I could say we had over here as well. But I think there's probably a lot of similarities. There was an Urban Institute study, for example, that I cited up and down and left and right, talking about how organizations were engaging volunteers. But they really broke it down to just some very broad brushstrokes about you know what volunteers could contribute to the organization. And it was fairly superficial, even right. for one of the more thorough and comprehensive studies of volunteerism. So we were wondering, how do we help organizations understand what volunteers are doing for the mission? What kinds of outcomes do they have? How is that good for the community? How is that good for the organization? How is that good for the volunteer? We were wondering how to make a case for volunteer centers, for example. This yeah. was something that when I would go to the hands-on network affiliate meeting, we were all wondering, how do we help the community understand this work and want to invest in it? Everybody said it was a good thing. There was not as much funding to support that thing that everyone said was good. And so we really wanted some research to back that up. It informs pretty much all of the projects I take on as, as well as the writing that I do now too. Yeah. Anybody who's listening to this that thinks that their cause struggles to attract donations because they're not kids or animals, you don't know the half of it until you've worked in infrastructure. Infrastructure, you can see the light draining out of funders' eyes when you talk to them about funding infrastructure. Yeah, actually, it's one of the most amazing things to fund because it unlocks so much potential in the community. We were exactly the same. I think we did a piece of work and we found probably only about 2% of people who volunteered in England were volunteering through a volunteer centre. Mm. But it was a disproportionately high number of the people who wouldn't traditionally access formal volunteering. Interesting. So it was people from refugee asylum seeker communities, people with English as a second language, people with disabilities, all those people that maybe needed a bit of extra support. Right. And that was great, but it also then meant that the volunteer centers got known by a lot of the volunteer-involving organizations as the bodies that were trying to play this place the quote-unquote difficult volunteers. There's a whole other podcast episode we should do on infrastructure. Right, right. I mean, there's so many just different threads that come out of that one, that one, really. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I mentioned at the start, you do a lot about measuring volunteering and you have some fantastic titles to some of your episodes around blogs. If people haven't checked out Sue's Volunteer Commons blog, we'll put a link in the show notes. But to give you an idea, some of the titles are things like when and where to use wage replacement rates or not for volunteer value. Does volunteerism have a low value proposition? And my personal favorite, I love tracking my volunteer hours, said no volunteer ever. Tell me, Sue, what is it that you think we get wrong in our industry, in our thinking and practice around measuring volunteering? One of the first issues that I see we have is that we keep talking about measuring volunteer value. And it's very difficult to measure often mm. because volunteers are doing work that is all about care or helping someone stay independent in their home and the dignity that comes with that. It can be an outpouring of love or an expression of our values. And those are notoriously hard to measure. So one of the things I've been encouraging is really looking at the language that we're using, for example, and thinking about how do we capture volunteer value? How do we reveal volunteer value so that we don't get stuck in this narrow focus just on the numbers that happens when we talk about measuring volunteer value? 
So that's been one piece of that. I think also that one of the challenges, and I'm not sure how this is in your neck of the woods, but the industry standard for volunteer value in the U.S. is often defined as the number of volunteers, the number of volunteer hours, and the wage replacement rate that's assigned by independent sector every April and for National Volunteer Month. And what that is helpful for is talking about how big is our volunteer core? How many people are we engaging from the community who are getting familiar with our work? What does that tell us about how many people it takes to get our work done, unpaid as well as paid? It helps us sometimes for grants with in-kind matches that we have to produce for those kinds of things. But it also gets in the way a lot. And I don't think we talk about the downsides of, of those things, which is that it reduces all of this beautiful, messy, dynamic volunteer work down to a really two-dimensional and rather sterile number that doesn't tell us anything about what volunteers do or what they contribute or how important they are to our missions or the community or or even the work that the impact it makes on the volunteers themselves. And so I think sometimes those those numbers and the reliance on those numbers has gotten in the way. I've had colleagues, for example, say, well, I wanted to talk about these other things volunteers do, but my marketing department or the folks who are in charge of the NRA court said, no, 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 don't worry your pretty little head about those things. We are only going to talk about the numbers because that's the industry standard. So it's become a bit limiting or completely limiting in that it really gives people this idea that it's one thing and that's it. And so we have to make even more of a case to talk about all of these other things that we can be weaving into the volunteer conversation. And one of the things that surprises me that people use it as an industry standard is we've been required to be so focused on outcomes and outputs and impact. And yet all of those things you're talking about, the numbers of volunteers, the numbers of hours, the, the notional wage replacement value is only ever measuring an input. It's, as yes. you say, it's not talking about the difference amongst the volunteer, the community, the organization, the client, anything like that. And yet we, don't seem to go any further than that. And it right. Amazes me. It does. Me too, because I think what's interesting is that we often say, we use the term volunteer impact, but if we were going to go to a nonprofit, say, and say, tell me about your organization impact, you would never tell me, well, we have X number of employees and here's what our payroll is and here's how much they worked last year. That doesn't count as impact. That tells you about what your team is, again, the input. And I think that what happens is that volunteers are an input to our program. They are an input to the organization to get the mission done. And when we start talking about their numbers and those industry standards, it makes them an output. Then we just say, oh, we had volunteers and we had a lot of them and we checked that box instead of what those numbers meant to us yeah. or overall. And do you think, they can actually be quite harmful in our organizations as well. I know I've riled when I've heard people talk about, oh, well, when you take that notional wage value, that's a saving. The organization saved money by having volunteers. I know our colleague Jane Cravens talks about this as well. You shouldn't be, if you use that language, you shouldn't be surprised that staff think volunteers are there to take their jobs away from them. So how do you, how do you see that kind of industry standard actually being harmful in the way that we go about our work with volunteers. Yes. You know, I read this book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde, and he talks about gift economies in it, primarily from the, the point of view of 
art and how difficult it can be to put a price on art. And he, he mentions that in fairy tales, when we count and price a gift that has been given, the gift loses its magic. And I think there's a similar parallel for us in volunteerism, that when we start to count and price the work, when we start to focus on volunteer hours as the primary figure that we're going to look at, it tells the volunteers that it wasn't so much who you are or what you did. It was just that you tallied some numbers and, and, and take all of that meaning making that we can do with volunteers and it just flattens and sterilizes and reduces it and, and kind of steals the, the vitality from it. Yeah. And that might seem like a really strong statement, but I think what happens is that when we, when we get on this narrow road, it starts to obscure all of the other things that can happen that, that can come from volunteerism. And so I think that a lot of the work of volunteerism is around what kind of meaning are we making? What did volunteerism mean to the volunteer? What did it mean to the community they serve, right? If you have a tutor who's coming in as a volunteer, that's different than having someone come in as a paid staff member to tutor or to be a mentor. It's a different kind of relationship. And all of those things that are unique about volunteers get lost when we just continue to flatten them down to, to the numbers. It starts putting the emphasis on quantity rather than quality. And volunteers are often about the quality of our work. And well, how do we get to a thousand volunteers becomes the question rather than how do we meet our mission with the support of the community? Yeah. yeah. How do we want to be in community with each other? And that's really what we're talking about, right? We have a bigger mission than we can achieve with paid staff. What does it mean to engage the community in that mission? Yeah. And I think we devalue it. I mean, you mentioned there the independent sector figure. So for those listeners who aren't in the US, independent sector in the US, as you said, publishes this figure in April every year for your National Volunteer Week about the kind of dollar value of volunteer. We don't have something like that in the UK. Most people, if they're going to do the calculation, will do it based on what the equivalent of our minimum, sometimes so-called living wage is, which you know, massively devalues volunteering because a lot of what volunteers do would be valued you know, if you were paying people, you'd be paying them way more than minimum wage. So, yeah. The, the other thing that I think we'll come on to some of the kind of alternatives in a second, but I think it was you, we were either talking or you you sent me an email during the kind of the first year of the lockdown and you said this focus on more volunteers as a goal was actually causing volunteer managers to have anxiety about whether or not they were going to be able to keep their jobs. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think people yes. would be interested to hear that. You know, one of the things that came out, and I, I talked about this in this book that recently came out from Disruption to Impact. Oh, yeah. And because what we were seeing is that for volunteer directors who had primarily defined their work as the number of volunteers they were able to engage or the number of hours that they were able to engage, once things shut down, and they, if they couldn't have volunteers and it looked like, well, what are you doing? We can't really justify yeah. your position. And so there were, of course, a million things that volunteer directors were doing in the lockdown to help reach out, to check on volunteers, to see how they were doing. Did they have their basic needs met? Did they need support? It was a way to facilitate community and conversation. So some organizations were shifting to, we're just going to check in and talk about how we maintain that and foster that that connection yeah. because our volunteers are friends and family for us and they care about the organization. In some cases, organizations were saying, 
we're feeling stuck or overwhelmed, we're not sure how to do this safely, what ideas do you have? And so some of those organizations that were able to not just say, oh, well, volunteers are not in the office, therefore they're not doing anything, therefore the volunteer director is not needed. Instead, the ones that said volunteers are part of our community, they have concerns, they have ideas, they have solutions, they have, you know, an enormous amount of imagination and creativity. And if we can tap that, you know, they might not all be able to shift and adapt the way that we've been talking about or is necessary for those initial stages of the pandemic. But the organizations that could really tap that community, I think, were the ones that are are in a stronger position right now. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. We probably haven't completely convinced people, but we've talked about why hours and, and numbers it might be easy to measure, but it's not necessarily the best thing we should be measuring and volunteering. So mm-hmm. given that this is a podcast about advanced level volunteer engagement practice, and most of the people listening to this will be leading volunteer engagement initiatives in organizations, what would you encourage people to think about as the alternatives beyond how many volunteers have we got, how many hours are they serving, and notional wage replacement equivalent? Yes. I think the first part to start is to realize that a lot of our organizations are not going to get rid of those numbers, and I'm not suggesting that we do. So just as the one blog that I wrote is, there's a time and a place for those figures, but not every time or every place. So let's use them for the right reasons, for in-kind matches, to talk about volunteer volume, to talk about what it takes, to talk about how much you're reaching in the community, but let's not try to use them as a proxy for volunteer impact. Let's talk about What are the results of all of that volunteer time? What could we do because we had volunteers that might be easier to define even now we are in the pandemic stages because we might've had to go without volunteers. So what was the impact on the communities we serve? What was the impact on the agency? What was the impact on the volunteers when people had to shift how they engaged as volunteers? And so let's talk about what it means to bring volunteers back and what we've been able to do with that. I think it can easily get overwhelming. And sometimes folks are like, I don't have the time. I don't have the expertise. I don't have a PhD and you don't need one. I think what's happening for a lot of us, it looks overwhelming and scary and we don't have time, but I always say, start small. Tell a story about what volunteers are being to the organization and think about who needs to hear that story. Is it the board? Is it the executive team? Is it your current volunteers who want to know what impact they're making? Is it your prospective volunteers who want to know that their time will be well spent. So I think, you know, just carve out something that your volunteers are contributing and think about how that links to the mission, not just what it did for the volunteer department, but what does it mean to the organization to have the community involved in meeting the mission and purpose? And I think where we start to link the volunteers to our organization's purpose, when we start to link volunteers into the goals of the strategic plan, when we start to use some of that language that perhaps our executives are using to talk about our work and to say, here's how volunteers are contributing to that, I think it repositions volunteers as an integral and essential part of the work rather than looking like this extra add-on that takes more time and is a distraction from our work. I think we really want to shift them into, this is how we do our work as an organization. And have you seen any 
examples of organizations that have kind of started to apply that approach i'm thinking kind of quite practically the things that people listening to this might want to do because i i, I mm -hmm. certainly chime with what you were saying there i've done training on measuring volunteering and people go well this is all very well and good but it's just too much time it's too much hassle i don't have the skills i don't have the phd how do i do it so what are some examples you could maybe share of where people have done it or the kind of things that people need to think about mm -hmm. so one of our our local organizations for example as part of the newsletter that's going out to the community has started including a part about their volunteer effort this organization engages the community at the visitor center but they also recently started a tree stewards program and that's engaging volunteers to take care of the thousands of trees that are part of the, the system. And so one of the things they're doing is talking about what volunteers are doing as tree stewards, that they are volunteers, that they need more volunteers. And here's what it means for us to have trees that are not just planted, but are cared for and stewarded over time and what that does for the park. And so that's just one little example about how it's not just something that the volunteer department sees, but the volunteer department sees this really core thing that's important to the overall health of the park and their organization. And they spotlight that and what it means to the volunteers to, to be part of that program. So I think that's just one example. Other organizations are, you know, building out in their annual reports, they're talking about a particular story or they're talking about what volunteers meant to someone who was a recipient or beneficiary or participant in the program, whatever the terminology you use. And so that's another way to, to just start pulling in something new, something different. They're starting to use things, for example, when they are talking about volunteer programs to a, a prospective volunteer, they're talking about the impact that volunteers make on the community serve. So what it meant to the volunteer and what it meant, for example, to the friendly visitor or the person who was participating in the friendly visitor program or the senior who was getting a ride, not only to maybe their hair appointment or the grocery store, but to visit their spouse who may be in a nursing home, for example, and what that meant to the rider or the rider's family to know about what that meant to have a volunteer give a safe and affordable ride to them. So it doesn't have to be a long multi-page report that you're issuing every year. Nobody probably wants to read those anyway. You know, how do you start taking these pieces, put it in the annual report, put it on social media. And I think there's a there's an organization whose name is escaping me, but they do a nice job on Twitter of really highlighting not only our volunteer of the year, but they talk about what that volunteer does okay. and what it means to the community and the organization. So it, it's, it's a great way to showcase, here's what volunteerism is in our organization. So it's a, a great recruitment tool as well as a recognition tool all at the same time. I know Martin Cowling and I, Martin was on the first series of the podcast. We've talked about this before, about every year when these recognition events come around, it's the same kind of volunteers that are always celebrated. You know, it's LCH 95, who's been volunteering for the last 80 years. And she serves all these agencies. And these people are brilliant. You know, these LCs are awesome. But who's telling the story of, you know, Dylan, who's 16, who's just given a couple of weeks and really transformed the organization's program. And, you know, just all of those kinds of stories that are really powerful for recruitment because most of us couldn't live up to the expectations of the service that the Elsies have given, but we could be a dealer. Right. And I think that's one of the other consequences of relying primarily on numbers of hours. Yes as our target figure, because there's a lot of people who might come in, maybe they're there for a three-month project, 
but they were able to support the strategic planning of the organization during that time. And they might, maybe our agency wouldn't have been able to afford someone or there's something else that someone's been part of an event. They might be completely behind the scenes, but making high impact. So I think when we define excellence in terms of tenure, we're missing out on all of the multifaceted ways that volunteers are contributing. And, and so that's a great example of another consequence of, of being numbers driven. Yeah. So what does an ideal future look like? If you could, if you could wave a magic wand that all of a sudden we're doing things the way that, that you think we could be doing things, what would be different for volunteer engagement professionals, for CEOs, for boards, for government, for funders? How would the world look to Sue if it were far more perfect around measuring volunteering? Thank you for that question. I'd love one of those bonds if you can, <laughs> you can figure out how to get us one of those. I think one is that we realize, you know, look at what we are doing to track volunteer contributions and to think about contributions and impact rather than numbers alone. Let's talk about the things that maybe are hard to measure or impossible to measure, but are the purpose of our organization. So for example, in that driver transportation program, or helping folks who are homebound get out into the community to things they need to visit, that might be helping them maintain a sense of independence. It might support a feeling of dignity. It's a feeling of relief and safety for their families who may not be able to check in on them, but want to know that mom or dad are getting to appointments safely or getting out in the community. I think that because it's hard to measure something like dignity or independence or safety, that we just skip over it. But that's probably why the program exists in the first place. So how do we draw on purpose and how do we draw on our values as a way to think about what we're doing? So it's not just a return on investment, but a return on values. So if a part of our organization values are about things like care or love or dignity or equity or justice, those are just as important in driving our organization. And while we won't have a numerical value to associate that with that, it does give us permission to use that language to justify the kinds of things we do and how we do it. And I think also, again, start small. Look around, figure out what we're doing, figure out, is that helpful? Is that helping us tell our story in a meaningful way? And if it's not, can we stop doing something that isn't useful for us? And what might we do in its place? And thinking about, you know, talking to the volunteers or talking to peers within the organizations to understand the volunteer contributions, thinking about also the people who are being served, what would they define as a good volunteer? Yeah. What would they define as a good volunteer experience? And does our information, our data, our evidence reflect the people closest to the mission? And if it doesn't, then maybe we need to rethink that too. So I think that's another way to just kind of resituate the work away from starting and ending with numbers and thinking mission, purpose, values, the people closest to the mission. And two kind of quick follow-ups to that. One, I've long thought that a big way that we can get the kind of shift happening in our organizations is changing the way that funders think about this because so many funders ask for numbers of volunteers numbers of hours that's like their key metric and that drives the organization then to have to go that way how can we 
maybe change the attitude of funders, first of all, and then I'll come back to the other point. Okay. I know we don't always have the space on grant applications to tell a broader story. I was a grant writer for a number of years as well myself, but I think when there are opportunities to begin to insert that into our grant request. So for example, I'm a part of a study right now. I was talking to funders asking, do they think about volunteer engagement? How do they think about volunteer engagement? And a lot of them were saying, I don't think about it. And apparently our nonprofits don't either. They're not asking for money for volunteer engagement. And so I think one of the things that we can do is even if we're putting in a program is to talk about the ways that volunteers contribute to that program and what it means to have that paid staff volunteer partnership, assuming there are paid staff at all, and to talk about what it means to have the community be part of the organization as a volunteer. And if we're doing that, when we talk about the program itself, program activities, what kinds of things that the program is accomplishing and how volunteers help contribute to the things the program or organization accomplishes, then we give a fuller picture that goes beyond just the numbers of volunteers or volunteer hours. One of the things I've made a recommendation to funders when I had that chance to do was to invite the organizations to give some sort of information or evidence that was beyond hours and numbers of volunteers. So you tell us what's meaningful to you and why, and it helped the funder really begin to learn when, for example, in this one project, UJA Federation of New York said, well, you tell us what a skilled-based volunteer is. How do you define that? What does it mean to you? And every single organization, I mean, there are only a a little more than a dozen, but they all had a different definition of that. And so I think that was a really good teaching moment for the foundation to, to realize that perhaps the way they were going and thinking about it was not the only way to think about it. That's really helpful. The second bit to it is something that I heard a while ago. So I was really fortunate when I worked at Volunteering England that I was co-located with the Institute for Volunteering Research. And they had a specific remit around helping to connect academics and researchers with volunteer engagement professionals because they don't tend to talk the same language and they don't tend to, you know, the academic stuff is maybe too impenetrable to volunteer managers. And I had somebody not within the Institute, I had somebody report somebody a while ago that said, well, look, there's no point as getting more complicated on measuring volunteering than numbers and hours, because that's what people like the International Labour Organization needs. So why should we go any further? How can volunteer engagement professionals engage with the academic community, many of our listeners may well have universities and higher education institutions near them to try and have that conversation and try and enlighten people about how what it is that we need, not just what the kind of academic world needs. Right. And I think that there's a real trick to that. And, and in fact, that was one of the reasons, one of the other reasons I went back to school was to be able to be literate as a nonprofit practitioner, as well as know the language of academics so that I could try to bridge those two things. I, you know, and I was just at this conference as a little aside, you know, where people were like, you know, how did it's a way, it seems like the bigger question is how do we get more sophisticated about measurement? That's not helpful. I don't think because we really, that's not going to tell the story in a more meaningful way. And so I think saying to academics, you know, creative 
and different ways of getting at impact or contributions. And we need to tap that information and knowledge. You know, what are these different methodologies that we could use, for example, to talk with participants in the organization to find out what matters to them and to then use that as a way to talk about what volunteer impact is. So I don't want to suggest it's easy because I think we're just, everything is driven towards quantification. So I, if anything, I want to give all of your listeners permission to keep beating this drum, even though it feels like we're, you know, Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. There's basically a cultural force saying you have to count and price everything. If we're going to try to say something otherwise, it's going to be hard work. But continue to say it, get creative, invite others to get creative and be a partner in saying, okay, we don't know how to do this either. Can we come together to think about creative, new, original ways to get at something that's meaningful and relevant? If there's numbers, great, but maybe there won't be. Or maybe, probably, there will be some numbers and some qualitative data that really tell a stronger story together. Just before we finish, I want to take a little bit of a swerve. So I was I was talking about your blog and the writing that you do at the start of our time together. And people will know I do a lot of writing and that's largely because I've got the late Susan Ellis nagging in my ear all the time that not enough people in our field write, Rob. You need to do more writing. You need to do more writing because she was big on this whole thing and more people need to write for our field. Last time out, we spoke to Karina Sadler over in Texas and she was talking about the volunteering, the practical volunteering that she does in the field. You write a lot in our field. Why do you do it? And why should other people be doing it? What is it that you get from that writing that you think our colleagues around the world could benefit from if they contributed their voice as well? Well, that's a great question. And for me, I've always been a journaler and writer. I I discover what I think by writing. And so it's a process for me to do that stimulate publicly and to also reach out to to others in community because it turns out that the writing has been a way to connect. I'll get a, an email or a phone call from someone saying, I read your blog and I'm interested, but I can't figure it out. You know, can we talk more? Which I love. So it's been a way to connect to others, sometimes across great distances to find kindred spirits who are saying, I have the same question too. How do we come to a better answer together? So that's been one of the reasons. And I think the other one is that a lot of people don't understand volunteerism from the perspectives that we do in our field. And I think there's a sense that it's easy or you just need to be a people person or we all know what volunteerism is because so many of us have volunteered. Yeah. And I think those who understand that it is complex and nuanced and amazing and messy and complicated need to help share those experiences with the rest of the world. So people, other people can understand the complex and nuance, not just the LC stories that are inspirational, which is great, but there's a lot that makes volunteerism possible. We're the people that knows how do we unlock and harness all of that community energy into something that's useful and not 
just people standing around feeling like their time is wasted. There's a big difference between those. And so I think those of us who are closest to it, who can talk about the things that are possible and the things that get in the way are doing a really important job of helping the rest of the world who knows little bits and pieces are the surface of volunteering to get a better sense of how do we improve this for us together. And you don't have to be, you know, the greatest writer in the world or I, I have never met a volunteer engagement professional who hasn't got something that I think other people in our field would love to learn from. I think we get in our our own way about writing. I'm not going to be good enough. I can't write. All of those kinds of things. And and actually, like you said, it's just a habit. It's if you're a journaler, it's really easy because you kind of do it anyway. It's just it's the habit of just sitting down and writing something, and then and then thinking, do you know what? I'm going to put it out into the world. And actually, the worst thing that can happen is not that people ridicule it. The worst thing that can happen is people just don't read it. <laughs> right, right. I'd rather somebody ridicules what I say than doesn't read it. You know. <laughs> and I've been surprised. You know, some of the things that I have write about are pushing against assumptions of our field or are, are calling in our field to, to think about some of the ways that we've been harmful. And it started conversations, not ended them. And I, I, I've been lucky, I know, on that side. But even if I wasn't lucky, you know, I think that these are the conversations we need to have. And I think sometimes for me, I was like, you know, Susan's like, what hasn't Susan written? I, yeah. <laughs> right? It's been covered. Why would my voice? But we all have access to different communities. Yeah. And everybody didn't, didn't know Susan's writings. Everybody doesn't yeah. know my writing or your yeah. writing. Yeah. So we all have this, this little bit of a pocket of the world that needs to hear everybody's voices. And even if someone's written this before, let's hear it. What does it look like from your point of view? What does yeah. it look like from your mission? What does it look like for your kind of volunteering? Because I think that those are all really important for folks outside of the volunteer space to begin to, to help get it. You know, we're always talking in, in our field at volunteer conferences about, oh, people don't get us. Well, one of the way they get us is by us telling them the story. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Before we finish, I want to do something I'm doing with everybody on the, the second season of Advancing the Profession, which is give you an opportunity to share one piece of wisdom with the listeners. So that could be related to anything that we've talked about during the course of our conversation. It could be something else that you want to share from your own experience or your perspective on how things are. But if you could only share one piece of wisdom with the field, what would it be? I think that so much of the way we do our work is based off of principles that are designed for businesses and paid staff and human resources. And they overlook principles of community. And so I would encourage us to look to principles of community for engaging the community as volunteers rather than relying so heavily on principles from business. Brilliant. Thank you, Sue. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. How do people get in touch with you? If they want to follow up, they want to read your blog, they want to get in touch, they've got questions, how should they do that? And we'll put some of the links that you mentioned in the show notes as well. But but just for, for people now, how should they get in touch? Yes. So I have my blog, which is called Volunteer Commons. And you can get in touch with me through the blog or through my consulting website, which is Sue Carter Tail Consulting. 
Thank you so much, Sue. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as always. And thanks for coming on Advancing the Profession. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.